HHW presents Who Reads the Watchmen? Issue number 9 by The Legion of Dudes. Did you know that in Morocco it is common to exchange a small gift when meeting somebody for the first time? In Japan, you must always commit suicide to avoid embarrassment. In Italy, you must always wash your hands after going to the bathroom. This is considered to be polite. Why are you telling us this? I am jetting off on an international business trip. Where are you going? To Canada. Where is it? Canada. Okay. Banded together from remote galaxies are the most sinister villains of all time. The Legion of... Dude, I've been mooching off you for years, and it's never been a problem until she showed up. Just dump her, man. Dedicated to a single objective, the conquest of the universe. And remember, we care. It's the Legion of Dudes podcast. Now, here's the dudes. It's three minutes to midnight. Welcome, everyone, to a half hour wasted presents Who Reads the Watchmen, issue number nine by the Legion of Dudes. I'm John, and I am here with my fellow cotton-headed ninny muggins, the Legion of Dudes. Introduce yourself, guys. Hey, this is Ken Morgan. This is Adam Reed. This is Russell. And this is Jim Deeds. And that's it for tonight. We're a little short on dudes. As usual, you can reach us at halfhourwasted.com or uh, legionofdudes.com. You can leave comments for us at comments at legionofdudes.com, and we are always available on the comicforums.com under the Half Hour Wasted Forum. And speaking of which, we did get some feedback for Issue 8. Is that right, Russ? We did. We, we got several comments. I'll just kind of read through a few of them here. From Darth BX, we've got, he made some comments about what we thought about the Watchmen, the end of, end is nigh, the video game, and I think that might be, um, one of our discussion points coming up, so we'll we'll probably table that until uh till a later discussion in another episode. But he said, Keep up the great shows. We had uh Caliban who said R.I.P. Hollis Mason based on last last issue there. Yes, um, he is dead. He's very dead. Um Dark BX also had uh a follow up comment and said again, can't stress how good your watchman shows are, bravo. Thanks, man. Which we always appreciate that. We got a comment from a, a new member I haven't seen on the forum a lot, Apathy Lad. He said, Hey, dudes, loving the Watchmen podcast. Um, he had a few comments on episode eight. Um, one of them was regarding the prose piece on ornithology, it is long, boring, and a challenge to read. However, I think it is meant to be this way. It seems like more of a commentary on the post Keen Act Dan Dryberg than anything. His piece on ornithology tells us little about his super heroic inspirations and gives us more of an insight on his current character, who seemed quite boring and uninspired leading up to his relationship with Lori. Thanks and keep up the great work. Appreciate all the comments that everybody that everybody had. Uh, as always, keep them coming. We usually post up a pre-issue thread uh, on the forum for whatever we're going to be talking about, whether it's Watchmen or a one shot or just some random discussion, uh, and then we always post that issue up to be a talkback episode after it's done. So um, this episode, as you're, as you're hearing, it'll be Thursday, December of the 11th. So on, on the 11th or 12th, we'll, we'll post up a, uh, a talkback forum on issue nine, and we appreciate everybody coming on and, uh, and 
posting their comments or sending us an email at comments at legionofdudes.com. Yeah, and anyone who isn't a member of the forums, uh, number one, why? And number two, you know, if you get a chance, drop us an email. We would really like to hear uh, what audience members we have reached that aren't members of the forum because our, you know, we, we're part of this huge community in the forum and we all kind of talk to each other a lot on the message boards, but we'd like to hear, you know, where you're from if you're not a forum member. So if you have the time, drop us a line. Or uh, send us a, a voice comment via email. Um, I think hopefully soon we're going to try getting up a, an actual call-in number to leave a voicemail, but, um, but you know, feel free to just record a little MP3 and, or wave or whatever and, uh, and send it over at comments at legionofdudes.com. We'll be happy to play it. Absolutely. So what do we have for a opening topic tonight? Today's discussion is, I was going to talk a little bit about the buying frenzy. Um, it, it kind of calmed down a little bit, but for a while there, it seemed like everybody had Watchmen fever. Um, you know, when that, right before that first trailer hit, when all the announcements were big, um, especially during Comic-Con uh, last July when they had the big presentation, the big show there, it seemed like anybody that had any, anything with the words Watchmen on it were selling it on eBay and trying to dump it off as fast as possible, and, and the, the amounts were insane. Thing. Uh, I don't know if you guys kept up with any of that, but I have the like the first printing absolute Watchmen that I bought. I bought it a, probably almost a year and a half ago now, and I paid. I bought it on eBay, and I paid probably thirty-seven, thirty-eight bucks, and then you know probably five, six bucks shipping or something like that, and retailed at seventy-five. And I was seeing like first and second printing absolute Watchmen's on eBay. Like I said, back July, August, September time, um, running, you know, 150, 200, even up to almost two, you know, 250, just for that absolute, which is just insane. Um, I know who's, I think Chris Neesman on 11 o'clock comics sold his original one through 12 run. And, and I think the final bid he got was like 250 or $275, um, for his 12 issue run on eBay. And it was, you know, and there were just, you know, tons of them, tons of them out there. I had sold my original issues probably, it was after we started, so only a couple of months ago, because um, they weren't in great shape. They were by no means graded, and, you know, every issue had some imperfections. You know, nothing was folded or creased, but they were banged up a little bit. They definitely weren't mint issues, so I said, you know, let me just see what happens, and I got like 90 bucks for them. Oh, my God, $90? Yeah, for, for twelve beat up comics, not beat up, but yeah, they still. weren't beat up. There was there was no none of the covers were folded, but they weren't kept. They weren't mine originally, and they weren't kept, you know, for resale or for collecting value or anything. They were just like stacked somewhere on top of each other, and they had you know, they had some wear on them. They had dings in all the covers, and I like took up close pictures and everything for eBay and explained what was wrong with every issue and. Yeah, I got I got ninety bucks for them, and I was like, wow. I was, you know, you sold, them, started, the full, you sold them as a full lot of twelve. Yeah, I sold them as a full lot, which was probably a mistake. Now that I now that I think about it, but um, you know, I started them at like fifty, and I was like, you know what, I'm not going to let them go for less than fifty. I'll just keep them if that's the case. And I was like, the the first fifty dollar bid came in like twenty minutes after I put them up. Yeah, I was yeah. I was seriously <laughs> tempted to take my absolute and flip it because I knew, you know, a that that. Previews is even resoliciting, I think, um, third and fourth printing. They, they solicited a third, I think. And then because that, I think that printing even sold out like within the next month. 
And so they solicited yet another one. And if, if we weren't doing the podcast, I seriously probably would have flipped that, that guy. What are it to five editions on that now? I think the, yeah, I think, I think fifth one, um, is the most recent because yeah, I think the fourth one sold out super quick and, and then they, they, they solicited a fifth. You know, I, I can imagine after the, you know, after the movie comes out, they'll probably, they'll probably go with a six. And even the trades, you know, before, before DC announced that whole consignment type deal, I saw on, on eBay, like, you know, even, I, I can't remember, I can't remember what edition they're up to now, probably 14th or 15th edition on the, at least on the trade, but, you know, early 5th and 6th edition trades were going for like, you know, 40, 50 bucks or something. And then the issues, you know, again, were just going crazy. Looking at eBay, kind of at current, you know, what, what, you know, what you, I guess, consider current, um, value. And I think some of, some of the frenzy kicked down a little bit, but there's a lot of sets out there, you know, complete near, you know, quote unquote near mint eBay, um, one through 12 issues going for like 85 and $90, um, you know, for the full sets with, you know, still, you know, a couple, several hours left in the bidding process. So I could, you know, how it, you know, eBay's the, the flurry in the last five seconds. So I could easily see these creeping up to, you know, hundred and, you know, 25, you know, maybe even $150, you know, dollar sets when it's all said and done. There's quite a few CGC graded stuff out there. Somebody has a, as a buy it now, they've got a 9.6 CGC graded number one for 80 bucks. And there's, there's a lot of them that have bids, bids out there. So it's just, it's funny how, you know, you make an announcement on something, it starts to gain that momentum and all of a sudden, you know, boom, everything just shoots and there's that whole speculation. You know, it's, it, it's like anything else. I think, you know, when the, when the first Batman movie came out in 89, you know, there was a total run on Batman comics. I remember trying to get, you know, people talking about buying back issues of Batman, even just, you know, regular, you know, nothing special. And the, the value was just, just, totally surging because everybody was going back through and buying up anything that they could on, on Batman. Well, any and, kind of, uh, any kind of eBay deal with anything going on when Spider-Man three was out, um, I was looking for, uh, I mean, Spider-Man 300, the first appearance of Venom. And that was going for, you know, $200 and more. I waited like three months and got one for 50 bucks, which is a little bit closer to what the book, the, the guide price was. Uh, but yeah, I mean, any, any kind of hype is going to be driving this stuff up. And as we get closer to March, it's just going to get higher and higher. Yeah, I could see, and then after uh, March comes, say two, three months down the road after that, everyone's going to be dumping this stuff online. It's gonna, you're going to see it real cheap, I think. Imagine if the movie bombs. <laughs> <laughs> there will just be five dollar copies of Watchmen trades, and they even made. I saw. I hadn't heard about this previously. I I saw the hardcover that they made. That's just you know the trade in hardcover form, not right. the absolute. You know those are everywhere now. Yeah, I mean, you can't walk into any any store that remotely goes near books is going to have the, the trade of trade there available. You know, just remember Walmart borders or, you know, you know, mom and pop's convenience store. If they, if they sell a book, they probably have Watchmen there. And I finally did Danny. see the absolutes in um, my local borders, which all these months I've been keeping an eye out and they've never had the absolute in stock. And I, I did see like three the last time I stopped in. So there probably was just recently a, uh, you know, a new edition that came out. Yeah, I'm hoping to pick up here that hardcover or the absolute once all this dies down, get a good price on it. Because I think that hardcover yeah. is going for forty bucks. Yeah, really? I mean, you could find if you go to a con. I mean, we were at Wizard World Texas, and we could have got Wizard, you know, just just Watchmen trades for between fifteen. I mean, there are a lot of 
a lot of folks on them for cover, which is 20 bucks. But there are quite a few that had them for 15, 16. There are a couple that had them for 13. There are a few people that had the hard, the, the, the absolutes even for, I think, 20% off. So it was 75 and then, you know, 20% off. So it was like 60 bucks or something for, you know, for the absolute. So, you know, it's, it, again, I think the, the hype is, is, is dying down some. And, and, and issue sets were wildly varied. I mean, you'd go to one booth and some guy would be selling all 12, 12 issues for a hundred bucks and you go to another booth and some guy was selling all 12 for, you know, 65 or, you know, 70. So it was just, it's funny how, you know, Wizard World had a lot of, um, Wizard World Texas had a lot of vendors, um, selling stuff. You know, it was, it was primarily a vendor con more so than I think I've seen in the past. I mean, there was a pretty decent, uh, artist alley, uh, area, but it was a lot of, a, a lot of, uh, a lot of dealers. I'm interested to see, um, with the New York con coming up in February, so close to the release of the movie, you know, it'll be probably just about a month. I, I believe the New York con's February 6th, and the movie's March 6th, isn't it? Or right around? Yeah, 369. Right. So, you know, it'll, it'll be interesting to see what it's like as it gets really close, you know, if it, if you're going to get bigger deals or if they're going to really tighten up and try to hammer everybody that hasn't gotten it yet. I see on the comic art fans, they actually have one, two, three original pages up. Uh, one is issue nine, which is actually our issue for tonight, um, page five, and that is an inquire price, so you know what that means. If you have to ask, you can't afford it. And they have issue 11, page 13, going for $4,950. Uh, $4, and issue eight, page twenty-eight, going for seventeen thousand dollars. You know those that you don't have to ask for. I can't afford those either. <laughs> yeah, let's I've, see uh, what is seventeen thousand dollars. Go ahead, Russ. I'm just going to open it up and see what page is seventeen thousand dollars. Yeah, well, you're looking at. I, I see they, I, they've got from Watchmen number nine, of course, very timely. Page twenty, um, which is that confront. We'll get to it in a little bit, but it's a confrontation between the older um, Edward Blake and and uh, Lori Jupiter at the party, and that page is sold, but it's sold for $6,600. So, you know, again, as we talk about this, you know, buying frenzy, I'd I'd be interested to see what these pages sold for a year ago or even two years ago as compared to what they are now. But, I mean, these are, you know, this is pretty big-time money for, for, you know, for pages. I mean, I know, you know, even the Alex Ross stuff is in the, you know, the ten to 12000 range, um, for the, for the big stuff, you know, this range for just, you know, regular average, um, you know, non-superhero-ish centric pages for him, too. So stuff, this stuff is climbing up. The $17,000 page is actually the last page of issue eight where Hollis Mason gets the statue in the skull and you have the kids trick-or-treating in the last panel, which is perfect because that's where we ended last show. So I guess okay. we can... Use that to segue right into issue nine. Yeah, cannot believe that after this, there'll only be three issues left till we're we're at the end of the Odyssey. Can't believe we haven't broken up yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, I heard. No, I won't go there. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So issue nine, page one. We see just like we've seen. I should I should just record this and have uh, John just re-edit it in because it's it's the same thing every time. But we see uh, page one. Panel one, 
but the, the image of the cover. You know, the cover is just a blown up, um, more high, a more detailed version of the first panel. And it starts out, this one, I, I thought this, this issue was interesting in the way it started, because this one is actually like a flashback to what happened previously. You know, we haven't really seen where, you know, the beginning of one issue is actually the end of, you know, the end details of a previous issue uh, from a slightly different perspective. Well, very specifically, um, it's from Lori's, Lori's perspective. You're getting her point of view here because you're actually seeing, well, you're seeing what the Manhattan transfer looks like by, from someone who's going through it. Right. One, one thing I wanted to say real quick about the um, the cover, just like the cover with the Rorschach, uh, with the shining the light on Rorschach being the metaphor of what was actually going on inside, this issue is pretty much like the um, the secret origin of the Silk Spectre. And uh, this is very um, symbolic of Laurie. She's falling. She's fragile. Nostalgia is the name of the perfume. And the very first panel, we even see Laurie and then the the, uh, the image of the nostalgia bottle falling. It's an image we'll see all through the issue. Yeah, it's almost like this issue, you know, kind of takes place, you know, between a moment in time. Uh, you know, as we see how how the the issue starts with the bottle in air and where it ends. And you know, like Ken mentioned. It, this telling is from Lori's perspective of what's going on. And where we've seen earlier is whenever they rehash panels or, or rehash things that, that appear later, they're pretty much identical reproductions of that panel. You know, whether it be the, you know, each issue usually has that theme that gets, that gets repeated. Um, and this one, it's interesting to see it from, from a different perspective. So, so we see it from Lori, Lori's perspective as, you know, Dan is, is trying to figure out what's going on, and Lori's telling her, hey, it's okay, we're going to figure this thing out, hopefully be able to resolve it, and then kind of get the fade out. Um, so this is almost like, you know, this is Lori's perspective of what happens when you know, when she gets, quote, you know, beamed out, for, for lack of a better term. And it's interesting how that middle panel starts with, you know, you know again, it's kind of a diced-up version of, the, of a single image where it starts off where it's completely, you know, the image, and then we get a little more slice of black, a little more, 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 until we get to the end where it's it's all completely black, and she's fading, she's fading away as Dan is trying to convince her not to do it. And of course, the title of the of the issue is the darkness of mere being. And then we get the the clock image on on page one in the background on that middle panel. You know, again, one of those images we keep seeing again and again. The nostalgia bottle, you know, again being that round that round image, which we've seen the nostalgia bottle several times so far, which, again, is more foreshadowing to what's behind this whole mystery that we're about to unravel here. Then we move on to, to page two, and then we almost get the the opposite. Again, This I think this would be a really cool type of transition in the movie, you know, where it, it could kind of fade to black in some kind of um, almost a Lucas-style, um, you know, edit or, tra- or uh, transition. And then, you know, we go back to the two of them on the moon, where Lori cannot breathe. Mars. I'm sorry. Mars. I think they're on Mars. Yeah. Mars, not the moon. I I thought that was a great detail. Yeah. The fact that she couldn't breathe. You know, it, it would have if she would have showed up on Mars with him and just continued the conversation. I don't think anyone would have questioned it. You know, they're superheroes. They're on different planets. You know, I, I don't think anybody would have would have had a problem with it. But having her not being able to breathe is just a great detail. You know. I think it's really telling that he forgot. Yeah, you right. Know? Yeah. I mean, even more than you know, she, that he totally, oh, these things slipped my mind. Yeah, yeah like he, he forgot he his more, keys. Yeah, it just shows how, how further, you know, further and further into like this godhood mentality he's getting and like the 
you know, whether, I mean, Lori's pretty much arguing for the, you know, the whole human race, uh, to Dr. Manhattan and this issue. And he seems like he's every, you know, every time we see him, he's a little further and further away. And as we from, go, not uh, being in touch with that, you know, and as we go through this issue, that, that point about him being out of touch with humanity is one of the reasons why this is one of my favorite chapters because Lori is able to bring him back to caring about humanity with something seemingly so simple as he calls it that you, it's so commonplace we forget what it is and we'll get to that when we go there but that's as they debate the fate of humanity um seemingly like he, like she's not going to win and he's a, she's able to going to be able to bring him back um almost like he kind of finds that reconnection that that we're going to get the uh nostalgia bottle falling is pretty cool how it looks uh almost like it's the same angle on that first uh panel page one, uh 3 uh, as Lori is on the uh, second panel. I think that was kind of a neat symbolism there. I also like, uh, at the bottom of that page, the coloring they do when it looks like uh, Lori is kind of, everything's kind of fading away for her and Dr. Manhattan's changing to a darker color. Uh, like she can, is having trouble seeing. Nothing, not everything is this bright. Yeah. Yeah, we see that falling, fragile. I mean, full of nostalgia. I mean, that's pretty telling that uh, it's supposed to be symbolic of Lori. I mean, she's living her, her mother's life pretty much her whole life. Yeah, and it's just, you know, we kind of touched on it earlier, but the whole, you know, how he forgot it. it you know, as we get into this issue, you know, it, it, it becomes a little more apparent as to what he remembers and what he doesn't and his explanations for, you know, why he remembers certain things and why he doesn't or why they're preordained to, to go down, you know, this path or the other. But, yeah, that was the first thing that caught my mind too. Is when it first landed. It's just it was so interesting that the guy that lived in in all times at once um, forgot to make sure that you know you know that Lori had air to breathe. The other thing it kind of it kind of hits home with too is again it's his detachment from humanity. You know he doesn't need air to breathe. He doesn't need any of the you know human comforts that we all or, or that any other normal you know human being would need or want or care about. He's just you know living in his own in his own world here on Mars. He's literally living in his own world. I get the sense that again, just like you're saying for how this connected, I also get a sense of he realizes how great he is. And, and that's part of why, you know, he forgets about everyone else's. I think he's too self-involved. Uh, and you know, he, t- he brings her to Mars and he's like, look, look at this, what I've built. Look how cool it is. And it's all about him. Another cool detail that I noticed, and it, it's totally not a big deal. It has nothing really, no impact at all. But in the third panel of um, page three, Lori clearly loses her shoe. And then, you know, <laughs> the middle panel, obviously she's missing a shoe. And then you go to page four, and uh, she's still missing the shoe. <laughs> and then on page five, you see her kind of hiking the shoe back on as she's walking through with Dr. Manhattan. You know, I, that just strikes me as cool that you know that, Alan Moore didn't specify that he wanted her to lose her shoe and put it back on, you know, so it's kind of just Gibbons adding his little, you know, his own thing to the pages, you know, yeah, and how many comic cool. books would you see somebody lose their shoe and put it back on, you know, not just appear in another panel with the shoe on. Yeah, none. It kind of reminds me of our discussion of hard boiled, because if you look on uh, panel one of four, you see all the stuff that fell out of her bag is drawn behind her. And then you notice the shoe is still gone. It's just the kind of detail that Gibbons puts into everything he does. So I was also, uh, recently I acquired some uh, Green Lantern uh, issues that Gibbons did with uh, Len Wein. And the art there uh, has a little, little detail like that, too. It's just really uh, 
it's, it's a hallmark to Gibbons craft, you know. Yeah, you know, I've always meant to ask you guys, and it, you know, it's, it's I'm just lazy. Obviously, I could do the research, but whatever, I'll ask you. Is this was this like a big breakout for Gibbons, or is all of his stuff this good and like this? I think before oh. this, um, I mean, this made him a you know a big name in America. He had done a lot of uh, comics in the UK uh, before this, but then after this, he ended up working with Frank Miller on a Martha Washington series for Dark Horse. And then he also uh, did uh, a stint on Green Lantern when uh, John Stewart uh, was the Green Lantern during the eighties, uh, and um, he's been—I mean, he's been around. But I mean, this is what really put him in the forefront, I think, anyway. Right, and you—and so, you'd say that this kind of attention to detail and everything then carried over into his other work, like you can see it in the Green Lantern stuff, and yeah, you can tell he's more on a monthly schedule. But I mean, it's still Gibbons, you know. I mean, it's still that—that that, you know, everything is where it should be, and there's all this. I really love Gibbons uh, camera angles, you know, so to speak, you know, in, in this comic art, like where each shot is. He's very conscious of the, you know, the blocking, quote unquote, of his, uh, you know, drawn characters. And that really carries over in a lot of his stuff. I mean, the, the Martha Washington books with uh, Frank Miller, the same amount of detail in, in there that he put into in Watchmen as well. Yeah, his, and I think for the, the, the annual he did, the, for the man who has everything, that was, Similarly, a lot of it took place in the fortress, and I think there are a lot of, um, as I remember, a lot of you know good, de- you know, fine detail in there as well. You know, very similar in, to, to, to what he's done subsequently. But yeah, I, I agree. I think this was his, his his big break. Yeah, I don't have comic book database in front of me, but I'm using my uh, my gym database, and I'm pretty sure this is like the first big uh, thing he had done in America. He had done a lot of British comics. Uh, but this is, I mean, the first thing that really came up on my radar at the time. Yeah, no, I agree with you there. And as it, you know, as we talk about his his attention to detail, if you guys, if you look at the bottom of page three, where she's, you know, he hasn't figured out that she needs the air yet, and she's kind of, you know, getting all puffy cheek, trying to hold her breath as best she can. We get that that middle panel on that last row. I guess it's going to be the the eighth the eighth panel where she's she's actually starting to black out. And, and he visually showed that from her. We're seeing through, you know, from her perspective, and you see the round swirling in the background, and then the, you know, the, pur- the purple, sp- the the pink spots that are um, that are popping up, and you know, John's actually, you know, getting darker, and there's a lot of blackness around. So she's basically on the verge of passing out here before he, you know, it kind of comes to him that, oh, yeah, I gotta give her something scared to breathe. Yeah, the fir- the first thing I thought of when I read this whole passage was the end of Total Recall. Yeah. <laughs> Get your ass to Mars. <laughs> so, Does it seem the- to you that his, uh, the, his castle on Mars is kind of influenced by uh, him being a clockmaker or watchmaker? Yeah. I mean, a lot of the parts oh, of the yeah. castle look like parts of a watch, a lot of gears, and uh, I don't know. It just really made me think of like a, a really ornate clock of some kind. Back in issue, what was it, four when he built it? I think we commented on that, but you're absolutely right. The, you know, the, the towers remind me of, of the hands of a clock. Of course, obviously the gear, the gear work and just the whole mechanism, mechanisms of it. There's also a symmetry to it as well that's just actually beautiful to look at, especially when later on when he, when he pulls it out of the ground to fly across the surface. Yeah. Yeah. We'll, we'll definitely see that a lot better later, but it's almost, yeah, we get almost at the bottom. Looking at like the at the bottom of four at the base there, it's almost like those are kind of like spring, you know, some kind of spring mechanism that's there. It's it, it's it's a, it's an interesting design because it's it's 
you know, for, for a, for a structure, for a house, so to speak, it, it, it has no, it's, it's totally not practical. I mean, you know, it's just, it's, it's just a bizarre looking structure out in the middle, you know, the middle of, of Mars. Yeah. Between but, the big uh, panels on four and five, you get a really good sense of the scale of it too. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. So going back to the clock metaphor, the, even the balcony reminds me of the top half of an hourglass, another you know, timekeeping piece. Yeah. And we see, you know, not to get too far off topic, but even the trailer, we've kind of gotten that, that look of it so far is, you know, where the trailer, um, you know, focuses on a, on a lot of gears moving. And then, you know, as you know, it, when we get to see the, the, the structure being built, it definitely has that, that look and feel to it. Yeah. I'm curious to see in the movie if, if this is static or if these gears are going to move as part of the mechanism. I'm curious to see how they interpret it. Yeah, that'd, that'd be interesting if it, if it actually moved. Even, it would even give it more credence to the whole um, clock, you know, watch kind of thing. But it's, it, it, it's interesting here visually now from here until the end around Lori, we're going to get this aura, which is, you know, I guess is basically her air bubble that, that takes place. So this is going to follow her around through the, through the rest of the issue. Then moving on to, to page five, we get more of the, uh, you know, the whole time displacement where, they really, and, and, and this will this will carry out for much of the rest of the issue, where they get into kind of these little arguments about how, you know, she doesn't understand, you know, how he knows certain things but doesn't know others, and you know why, you know that that everything's kind of pointless because if he knows how the, how it's all going to end, then why should they even bother talking about it in the first place? So it, it's interesting that, you know, again that, that this whole concept with Doctor Manhattan of him being, you know, at at all times at all, at all places, and how he 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 tries to explain you know, that concept to Lori, you know, it, where, you know, when she first realizes she's on Mars um, at the bottom of four, you know, John's response at the top of five is, of course, it is here on Mars that we debate Earth's destiny. So again, he's, you know, and she, you know, she, her response is, you know, I, I can't take that, you know, predestination stuff right now, you know, that, that, that's not what we should be, you know, talking about it. Yeah. It's funny because I it, smile, I smile when I read this because, you know, she's asking all the same questions that I asked when I was reading, reading through the first time. You know, like the Nova Express, you know, if he already knows, why did the X surprise? And he just here, you know, goes with his responses. And just the metaphor he uses, how we're all puppets, but I can just see the, the strings, that just makes perfect sense. Yeah, that was an awesome, awesome response. You know, that in this whole, everything is preordained, even my responses. So it's kind of weird, you know, how if he, it almost, I mean, it makes sense, but it doesn't make sense. I mean, if, if you know you're going to say something or do something and you know that's going to have a negative outcome, then why wouldn't you change it? His, his answer is, well, I say it because I'm supposed to say it. It happens because it's supposed to happen. It's almost like, you know, again, when we get into this, you know, thing where he, he, he's kind of realized, you know, what he can change and what he can't change. And, and we've seen where there's things that have taken place in the past, the Kennedy assassination and things like that, that were fully in his realm to to fix or to change, but but he doesn't. I think I think it comes to c- very clear during these next couple of pages that he can't doesn't see the future in that this is what's going to happen. He sees the future the same way we would remember the past. So again, to him, as he said before, it's already happened. You know, but because he doesn't see time as linear, and and it, again, the the facet of a jewel, as he describes, is again perfect. You can see the whole thing. Everyone else can only see it one facet at a time. And I imagine even even for somebody as as all knowing and complex as him, it must get confusing. It's keep it all straight. You know when, you know if you know things, if things happen to you, 
in a nonlinear fashion, how do you keep it all straight? How do you know, you know, when something is either going to happen or has happened or will happen or won't happen? Um, it, it, it all gets, I, I can see where it all would get jumbled even for somebody as, as seemingly omnipotent as, as John. One of the few remaining questions I have about John's ability to see the, see time in this way is can he see all of time or can he only see within his lifetime from the days born to the day he will, you know, die if he can. And as we go on further and talks about how the future becomes hazy and begin to wonder, does that mean he's going to die? And again, everyone, you guys have all read it. I haven't read past this issue yet, so I don't know what's going to happen. I'm interpreting this as I go. It, it, it's kind of interesting here too, where, you know, moving on to, to, to page six, where he's building, you know, he kind of builds this, you know, I guess the table and chairs for, for her to sit at or for them to sit at. And again, it, 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 it kind of, you know, comes out of the, out of the floor and it, it still maintains the same structure and the same motif as the, as the fixture itself. You know, the backs of the chairs still have the, you know, the sprocket look with the spires and the table, I'm assuming is, it's round and it looks like a sprocket even. So everything, you know, that he makes to go in the structure as a, you know, to, for a practical stance follows the same motif as a structure. The, the, the goblets or the, the drinking glasses are, you have an hourglass. Um, shape to them all. So, so it's interesting how how he, you know they they've kept that forward. Then at the at the bottom of six we get this is kind of the recurring image for this issue is you know the her Lori staring at the from her perspective staring at the snow globe um, with her hands on the sides picking it up off that mantle. We see this this exact same image um, several times and and you know this this has kind of been a theme for this this comic is every issue seems to have that one image that gets repeated, you know, over and over again, um, from, from beginning to end. It's a very cool metaphor too, of like her childhood, uh, her smiling inside that magic kingdom, inside that fragile glass bubble. And as we see that image go through, uh, the whole issue, like you said, um, it's a really cool metaphor for, for her childhood itself. I mean, it kind of ended that well, as we'll see in the next few panels there. And it's interesting how, you know, starting on six, this is where we start to get into the past of, of Lori Uspechik, um, as she, as she refers to herself as, as opposed to Lori Jupiter. And, and it's almost like Dr. Manhattan is kind of her shrink for the, for the issue. You know, he's her, um, her guide through her, you know, remembering her childhood and coming to grips with who she really is as opposed to who she thinks she is or who, um, you know, you know, the things she's blocked out of her past or, just flat out ignored, and, and it's interesting how um, he he ends up being her guide to help her through. And then in the end, we see how that reflects back or, or comes back on Doctor Manhattan, and, and how that how her going through her journey and coming to the realization that she comes to affects um, him in the end. It's like it's like she's uh, just, by justifying her own existence, she's justifying all of mankind because she's debating you know, the fate of mankind with Doctor Manhattan, basically. Yeah, and it's, like I said, it's kind of taken her on a journey she wasn't expecting to go on, you know, bringing up the past and, and all that. So we get, you know, moving on to page seven, you know, we transition to, to Lori as a little girl and she, you know, she kind of wanders down the stairs and overhears the conversation that her parents are, are having, you know, an argument. And it's interesting because, you know, now we're getting the seeds of who, um, who she really is, who Lori really is, where they're having an argument about, you know, about an affair that, that Sally had and that, you know, it's pretty obvious 
um, at this point that that affair resulted in a child, so that Larry is not uh, Lori's biological father, and he's always known it. Um, but she she knows it now, but she didn't know it then. And then we see again, we see that image kind of towards the end of of seven where she's holding it. And it's interesting that the 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 image in the snow globe is of a castle, a castle with a lot of spires on it. So one of the things I thought of when I was when I saw that was, is that why John, Doctor Manhattan, chose to build that structure out in in the wastelands of Mars with that look and feel to it? I mean, yes, it looks like a clock, and yes, it resembles that, but it also very much resembles like a castle type structure. So is that something he picked out of her childhood? Is that something that? Um, he came across, and that's why it was that way, or is it just coincidental that you know they they both have happen to match? Is that what kind of sparked her to have this memory? She's looking at the structure that almost looks very castle-like, and it makes her think of that snow globe with the with the castle in it. Um, I, just, I just thought it just kind of brought up a lot of interesting points for me to, to kind of think about. Yeah, I think that's very possible, and a and a really good catch, and. You know, John didn't have to be there because he's everywhere. So he can know that, you know, memory of hers just through his powers, you know, and, and kind of be using it to his advantage in his, you know, coercion of her to kind of tug on her heartstrings type thing. Yeah. And, it, and it's interesting, her choice of words, too, you know, at the bottom of seven, it says, which, you know, again, with a repeated image, it's I lifted it staring, um, starting a blizzard. So she, you know, she talks about lifting the, you know, the globe off the dune and started a blizzard. And what's really, you know, what's going on in Lori's life at that time is her father and her mother are are having a huge argument, and it's stirring up, you know, a storm, so to speak, um, of, you know, about her. You know, it's it, it's really getting to the core of, you know, of the the downfall of her parents' relationship is this affair that that Sally, that Sally had, you know, many years before but it you know obviously you know, my impression is this is the first time that they've had this argument this is the first time this has come up is Schottheiner, is that how you pronounce his name uh, Ju- uh sally jupiter's uh, husband um would probably just resent Lori because she'd be a constant reminder of the fact that he isn't really her father and she, you know she's the child you know child of a, of a union you know, out of wedlock union which would have been a big deal you know back then the other thing I read, I never got the the impression that their marriage was nothing more than a marriage of convenience, so that there wasn't any real love or intimacy there between them. So it almost seems like would he really care, um, one way or the other? But clearly, he he cares to some degree, maybe more of his image than anything else. Yeah, it's it, yeah, yeah, and it, it you know it, it it's kind of accentuated in the exchange they have on the middle of seven, you know where. Um, you know, where Sally says it means you've reached something. It means when, well, let me back up a little bit. One of the things they argue about is how she's describing her affair with this, with the, at this point, it's this unknown person. Um, it becomes extremely clear later as to who it was. And Lori um, misinterprets this argument when she thinks back on it until later. But she says, you know, one of the things that Sally says is, plus he was gentle. Do you know what gentleness means in a guy like that, even a glimmer of it? And, and then Larry says, oh, spare me. Says, and then Sally says it means you reached something. It means you reached something of that magical romance and BS that they promised you when you're a kid. So she's, it's almost like Sally justifying her, 
her affair with this person, that the person she's talking about was so hardened, so uncaring, and so, you know, mean that if somebody like her was able to bring out the best in basically a horrible person, you know, the experience they shared must really, really mean, and, and, and you know, it wasn't just, you know, she's basically saying it wasn't just, you know, a, a spur-of-the-moment thing. It wasn't just a one-time happening thing. You know, th- there was something meaningful there, and she, you know, she's obviously dwelled on it because, you know, like I said, I don't think this is the first time they've had this argument, and it's come up again. Um, and obviously Larry's having a hard time dealing with it, and rightfully so. But it, but it's, it's, it's interesting is, you know, when we come to the end of the, you know, towards the end of the issue and we find out, you know, who it really is, you know, th- this conversation just has that much more, more meat to it. Real quick, out. something we talked about in another episode. Maybe if one of you guys have the absolute edition, because I don't. At the bottom of uh, page six, she seems to be putting something into. Remember, we talked before about the Egyptian style. Um, like on, on the sixth panel of page six, she's unwrapping something. And then on the bottom of the eighth panel of page six, she's putting something into the little thing. Can anybody tell? Is that like a wad of tobacco or something? Or Yeah, that's how I'm interpreting it. Like, so there's some sort of tube or pipe or something, and she's smoking tobacco through it. Yeah, I think that, you know, I think we kind of touched on this a little bit in one of the earlier episodes, that this is almost like the feminine version of a cigarette. Um, yeah, that's why I was asking eight. about it. Yeah. You know, fem- you know, males smoke, you know, actual cigarettes, and the females smoke through this this pipe-type device. But, yeah, I interpreted it as being tobacco. That's what she's unwrapping and popping in there. I think I saw uh, one of our posts on our forum that, that questioned that idea that we did see men smoking that type as well. I, I don't know for sure where I saw that, but, but I remember seeing that, uh, like I know we see, um, uh, I think Joey, the cab driver, smoking a regular cigarette, but that's, you know, probably to be expected as well. Yeah, that was, that was one of Apathy Lad's other comments where he talked about the Egyptian style smoking device. Um, he, he wasn't sure it was strictly meant to be an effeminate, um, you know, device. Because it, it, his comment was that on the on the back cover of of a men's adult magazine that there was an advertisement for that smoking device, and it was kind of an interesting thing to say um, that you'd be advertising a, on a magazine here for men a, a smoking device that was typically associated with a woman. Um, but yet the woman in the in the there was actually a woman looking at the men's magazine, and she the, the woman was was gay and. She was smoking a regular cigarette. So again, we get this whole, you know, it, it, it seems to, to identify, be identified with certain gender roles. But. Back in uh, chapter four, I was just flipping through random pages and I found in chapter four, page 24, there's a scene where there's a man smoking that type of cigarette. Just a random man walking down the street. Yeah. I think, you know, there, there was some discussion as to whether or not that men smoking that type of cigarette, you know, spoke to something about their orientation um, or there's their social preferences right or not you know and again the the woman you know being that the woman or is a cigar just a cigar and we should move you know not not worry too much yeah. about it true true so after that detour moving on to page eight um we, we kind of see the globe slowly crashing once once larry and sally realize that their daughter's been downstairs and kind of hear what you know, probably have listened into their conversation. Um, yeah, they start they start yelling at at you, and 
this is where Lori makes the, you know, makes the comment about Larry. It says, my dad yelled and sent me to bed. He was always yelling, probably because he knew I wasn't his. And then she, you know, again, she says, my, my real dad, I'm pretty sure was my mom's old boyfriend, Hooded Justice. So again, she's, she's kind of in denial as to who, um, you know, who her, her real father is. And, and that comment about Hooded Justice doesn't really jive with what, uh, what Sally said earlier about her experience. And I mean, as we'll see, I mean, I'm not, you know, we'll, we'll be getting to it here in the next few pages anyway, but what we'll find is that, you know, the, the person that Sally was talking about and the person that Lori's in denial about is. Wasn't Hood Justice uh, uh, part of a couple with uh, Captain Metropolis? Yes. Well, actually, yeah, it's kind of interesting how we'll get to that in the prose pieces at the end where we have the scrapbooks. Um, it's really hinted. It, it's it's not outwardly said, but based on uh, on on what they said, that that's pretty much it's pretty well hinted, and and um, they talk about Sally's role in kind of um, you know trying to cover over um, his identity. So yeah, we'll we'll that that'll become clearer in in the prose pieces at the end. At the uh, bottom of eight, we really see how much Lori has her work cut out for her. You know, she's. You were my only link, my only concern with the world. When you left me, I left Earth. Does that not say something? Now you have replaced me. That link is shattered. Don't you see what that means? Don't you see the futility of asking me to save a world that I no longer have any stake in? I'm really hoping they keep that in the film because, I mean, that really succinctly puts where Dr. Manhattan is. I mean, he is above it all now. He really has no ties to the Earth anymore other than yeah, that, that line is directly in the trailer. Well, that's one of the things where you can see the two of them talking to each other, and he says, why would I want to save a, a, a world I no longer either live in or have a stake in or something like that? But, yeah, that line is, is I definitely noticed that in the, in the full trailer when we saw it. And her response, I don't think, is quite um, the same. I think she basically kind of makes a plea to him that, you know, in, in, the, in the trailer, at least the, the way they edited it, it could, it could end up totally different. But he, she basically says, because I'm asking, I'm begging you, you know, to, uh, and we see in the, in the book, um, you know, how she, you know, she's basically saying, don't be ridiculous. You know, you know, you're telling me that, that, you know, starting on page nine, that, that, um, you know, the, the earth's too important to hinge on one relationship. Um, you know, she says, she's telling him, look, you can't base everything based on one relationship. And he's saying, you know, he's basically saying, I can't. And then, and then his response, you know, after he says not to me is, my red world here means more to me than your blue one. I will show you around it, it, it if you wish. So it's interesting how, you know, again, we get the contrast, red versus blue, um, you know, kind of the opposites. You know, again, we get a lot of contrast and a lot of, um, a lot of, uh, symmetry and a lot of, um, and, and a lot of opposites to how you, how you refer, refer to one world as red one. And then, of course, our first reaction is, oh no, don't, you know, don't start teleporting me around. You know, you may not remember to make me breathe, and, uh, you know, and I'm not going to keep throwing up. And so he, uh, you know, kind of a acquiesces, and, uh, you know, that we get the structure rising out of the ground. And then, kind of like Ken was mentioning earlier, we find out that the thing that was buried in the ground, we only saw the upper half of it, that, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a completely symmetrical structure on, on all four axes. And that's just a really cool image at the bottom of, of nine. We see that a lot in, these, in, this, in this issue, I've noticed, where we get a lot of these pages with, you know, basically what amounts to four panels, it seems, where that last panel, you know, the last panel is really a combination of the sixth panel structure. And, and it's like we're getting a Martian sunset, at least in this portion of the, 
of the planet right now. So we get a lot of reds and oranges on the coloring. Yeah, I think him opening up the panels like that really gives you a sense of scale when you think that, you know, those that little blue dot and that little red dot at the top of the, uh, you know, the cup, I guess you'd call it, the balcony, um, the, you know, the giant panel on page nine, that, that's Laurie and Dr. Manhattan. I can just barely see it in my regular trade, so if you have an absolute, you can probably see the little dot. Yeah, it's a, it's a slightly larger dot. But, but it, you know, it's interesting, his comment, too. It says, it says, I fully understand the seriousness of our circumstances, the gravity of our situation. And, again, like we've seen, where you know, the dialogue says one thing and the picture says something different. So he talks about understanding the gravity of the situation as he levitates an entire structure, you know, completely off the ground and starts moving it, you know, totally defying gravity. Then we get on 10, what, one of the things that I, I kind of picked up on is, you know, we talked about, you know, Dr. Manhattan as being kind of this omnipotent, almost godlike being. And then, um, you know, she, she, you know, Lori says, you know, I need to drink. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to be sick. What's in the bottle? And he says, well, what do you want to be in the bottle? And then she says, oh, just water. And he says, as you wish. And then he starts pouring in this, you know, chalice, which would be, you know, almost like a, you know, a cup. You know, he pours water. Um, you know, I, I got a very almost Christ-like comparison, you know, with this, where he's basically turning, I mean, not, not you know, water into wine, but, but you know, nothing in, into water. Um, you know, the ability, you know, basically where he can pretty much do what he wants. And then being that it went, you know, it was poured into, you know, into a, a chalice, a cup. I just, I got a very biblical uh, vibe off, off that. Yeah, definitely. It's cool, too, the way Gibbons draws the water in the middle panel there, going, like, across Laurie's eye. You know what I mean? Kind of the face with the deaf, you know, the, the defaced face that we keep seeing over and yeah. over. Yeah, and her, her look of utter shock. You know, I just, you know, almost like she wasn't really sure that he would actually be able to do it. And then, you know, sure enough, he starts pouring out water from this, you know, this glass and look of, of shock on her face. And then it, it's interesting because, you know, she's, again, she's playing with him you know, that, that, that the human race should be saved. And it says, humanity is about to become extinct. Doesn't that bother you, all those people dead? And John's response is, all, all that pain and conflict done with, all that su- needless suffering over at last, no, no, that doesn't bother me at all. So he's, he's basically, you know, saying, you know, how can you say it's not a good thing? There'll be no more pain, no more suffering, no more war, no more, you know, you know no more afflictions. You know, basically... If everything, if all the people die off, then, you know, the world can just exist in a natural state and evolve as, you know, as, it, as it's meant to. You know, and you kind of, you know, at the bottom of 10 where it says all that effort and what did it ever lead to? And he basically says, you know, the, the, you know, we've been through all, you know, the entirety of human evolution and in, in the end, what's it going to lead to? It's going to lead to humans destroying themselves through nuclear Armageddon. And it even segues into her lifting the weights and... You know, now it's her, what did all of her effort lead into, you know, as she prepared herself for, you know, whatever she was going to do. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great, you know, again, it's a great transition, you know, to see where she's, you know, she's lifting the, the cup at that angle and then, you know, you, you cut over to her lifting the weight up. So, you know, again, this will be a cool, you know, pro- provided they keep it in the movie, that'll be another cool cinematic style um, transition. Then we see Lori. It's one of the things that was interesting moving on to 11 that we see is as Lori, you know, gets closer to where, you know, Hollis, uh, Sally and Nelson Gardner, Captain Metropolis are having a little bit of a reunion going on. 
she's she's starting to hear the conversation, and they even write it in here in the in the in the bubbles where you're picking up like you're missing words, almost like you know you you're it's like you can sort of hear a conversation, but can't hear all of it. So words kind of drop out, you know, parts of words kind of drop out and, and pick back up again until she comes into the room, and then boom, she hears the entire conversation. Their conversation kind of puts it in the time context too, because they're talking about Dan Dryberg. You know, oh, we're an inspiration. That new boy in the papers feel proud. You know, they're, they're obviously talking to Alice Mason about. Yeah. One thing I caught on this page was, um, you know, Jim is always talking about how Sally, I should say, how Lori is living the same life as Sally. Um, and if you notice, Sally on this page always has the olive on the stick in her hand in the martini. And it really mirrors Lori with the cigarette in her hand on the previous pages. Yeah, the olive on the stick is the same shape as the cigarette that Lori smokes. Yeah, that's, that's a good pick. I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't catch that at all. And we get, you know, we get into the interesting, you know, conversation where, you know, Hollis asks Lori if, if she's read, read his book. And then, you know, Sally kind of butts in and is like, oh, I didn't give it to her yet. And she kind of plays it off. You know, she's young. She she don't want to read that old, you know, whereas, you know, there's a reason she doesn't want, you know, her to read it you know, because of, you know, Hollis's revelation about about what the comedian did to her and how that you know, might, you know, impact her as a, as a youngster reading about a, a violent attack. And here we get another thing that plays a timeline. She's saying she's 13. So this is about three years now before that 65 meetup. Meet so we know we're 1962 now in around there. Yeah. And then it, uh, one of the things I got out of this as well is where Sally introduces herself and says, oh, this is your Uncle Nelson. You know, um, you've seen the picture. And she says, oh, yeah, Captain Metropolis, you were skinnier back then. And he's like, uh, yeah, right. It almost got like a driver vibe out of that, you know, where, again, it's, it's, it's almost like the next generation comes in where, you know, later on it's Lori and Dan that are sitting around talking about the good old days. And now it's, it's Sally Hollis and, and Nelson talking about the good old days and you know, we see Nelson Gardner who's you know put on a few pounds since the good old days. So I, I just kind of got a little bit of a comparison to, to what we'll see later with Dan. Not a spring chicken anymore. The other thing is, is too is the house. I mean they, you know Sally is obviously doing pretty well. I mean she's living in a house a big house with a fancy indoor swimming pool and you know looks like a you know weight room and a separate weight room or workout room or whatever. So she's you know she's doing pretty well. Now, who is this who arrived late to the party? I don't remember who this is. Uh, Byron. Byron Lewis is Mothman. Oh, okay. And they mention in Hollis's book how shortly after, um, or I, th- I forget, there's somewhere in the prose piece earlier, I think, where they talked about how he was committed to, uh, you know, committed to an insane asylum. Yeah, I shortly, think that was the number. I was just going to say, I think that's in the Under the Hood, uh, one of the Under the Hood pieces. Yeah, and I mean, basically, he's, I think he's kind of been in and out at this point. So, you know, it's kind of interesting how they, you know, try and hush it up, but they all act like it's, um, it, it's good to see him. And then he, uh, he spills the glass. You know, he, he knocks the glass over, and then the next panel on the, um, the nostalgia bottle is spilling everything as the nostalgia bottle pours out. So again, we, we kind of see whenever they show the nostalgia bottle doing something, you know, earlier the, the caption was fragile and you kind of see it, it's, it's, you know, it's a, it's, it's glass that's falling. You know, everywhere we see this nostalgia bottle, 
you know, whatever whatever the, the caption is on panel mimics what, what's going on with the bottle. Now, real quick, like, is, is um, at the time of this meeting, other than the comedian, all the other Minutemen are gone, right? The silhouette died and Hooded Justice disappeared, right? Yeah. yeah. So then other than the comedian, these are the four remaining Minutemen. Right. Right. Then we uh, move in on Oh, and the- poor Dollar. I forgot Dollar Bill. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, Dollar Bill. Yeah, we kind of in, Hol- in the Hollis Mason press pieces, we kind of kind of read the fates of the of the remaining Minutemen. And somewhere else, we find out. I forget where it was. I think somewhere on the funeral, they talk about you know Captain Metropolis was decapitated in the car accident. So you know, shortly after after this, he's he's no longer there. So we pretty much find out the fates of of, of all of them at this point. So you know. Pretty much at this point in in the in the actual timeline, I think the only one left is is Sally. She's the only the only one still alive after Hollis was was killed. And then moving on to thirteen, where where he talks about um, Doctor Manhattan talks about you know the ripple the ripples on um, uh, around the pole. It says shifting around the pole in ripples ten thousand years wide. So to me, it's almost like he's he's comparing you know what normally you know if you cut a tree down, you could count the years. You know, by counting the rings on a tree, he's kind of, you know he's basically saying you could you can count the you know the years you know of of evolution or of change on on Mars by counting the the ripples in this this cavern that they're they're staring down at, and then Lori starts to to kind of argue the the value of of light. Don't you find it kind of weird that um, Lori goes on and on about like these formative things in her past? Yeah, Doctor Manhattan counters with. You know, top topographical uh, details. You know what I mean? I mean, again, it's very telling of him not holding on to his humanity. Yeah, and then we'll get later on when he makes the comment about the chasm. You know, about how you know has anybody's life ever reached you know so you know the highs of the mountains and the and the lows of the chasm, and then you know, and and, and then Laurie kind of has another revelation after that. Then then it's interesting again. We get this whole godlike. Um, ability of Dr. Manhattan where Lori you know, says she, she wants some milk instead of water. And then, uh, he doesn't even, he doesn't even respond to that at this point. You know, the next thing you just see her pouring a white, you know, substance into, into a glass, which is moving on. I to really the, like that big panel on the top of 14. Oh, going through the cavern to the, the canyons? Yeah. 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 Chaotic terrain. Then, you know, when John makes that comment about about chaotic terrain, Lori kind of says that, you know, that's basically how my life has been, you know, chaotic, you know, and then, and then she kind of, you know, picks back at John and says, you know, or is that too abstract, too unquantifiable? And then, you know, she, she basically says, you know, if you think, you know, looking at rocks and twisted shapes is, you know, is, is fascinating, you should have seen me before I met you. I was, you know, basically she's saying she was a complete mess, you know, before, before she met John. And then, you know, again, we get Lori's, you know, really, you know, hard response about, you know, her mother pushing her into this life that, you know, the, the costume adventure, the workouts, all that stuff is not, is not the life she chose. It was the life that was, you know, chosen for her and she was, she was thrust into it. So then we get, you know, at the bottom of, of 14, when she talks about how, you know, the, the, the crime busters meeting they went to, you know, her mother drove her there in a limo and waited for her outside. So again, it's just this whole, you know, forcing into it. And then, you know, and again, we see the, the first meeting of the crime busters um, from another perspective. So we've seen, it's interesting how we've seen bits and pieces of the, of the crime buster meeting from, from several different angles and several, several different perspectives. 
um, and you know, you know, uh, and 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 different things going on to kind of get the complete picture as to what really happened at that meeting, you know, from all from all sides. Yeah, I really see Sally Jupiter as like being the ultimate stage mom. You know, it's totally uh, putting projecting her own uh, ambitions onto her daughter, which she never got to do actually. You know, she never really was. You know, much of a crime fighter, she was just kind of a gimmick to be in movies, but she pushes her daughter to be what she could. Yeah, she's she's the, the epitome of the cheerleader mom that you know plotted to kill the other the other cheerleader, so her daughter gets a shot on the squad. Then we see you know moving on to yeah, I thought it was it was interesting how you know they said how everybody left. You know, Dan, you know took took off in the battleship, which I thought was kind of funny that they would go to a public meeting and. and he would just kind of take the Alice out to the public meeting, like he, you know, take his, you know, four-door sedan, and then Rorschach sneaking away, and how, you know, he always gave her the creep. So, you know, everybody basically is, you know, fitting in their, you know, or was fitting in their exit. And then she comes across the comedian afterwards. I got a real weird, you know, weird vibe after reading, you know, this, and felt a little conflicted as to what the intent was, because there's almost you get a slight creepiness out of the way he's focusing on her and looking at her. And, um, I mean, here's where it really becomes apparent, you know, at, I mean, after the whole exchange, it really becomes apparent, especially on that sixth panel, that, you know, he is, in fact, her father, that there's, you know, there's no question. You know, even, and then he makes the comment about her, you know, her hair. You know, you ain't got her hair, but otherwise, you look like her. You're a looker. And if you look, the comedian and Laurie have exactly the same color hair. Yeah. So it, it, here's where it really becomes apparent. And, you know, it's almost like yeah, at first, they, you know, you, you kind of get, you know, he's just being creepy, you know, just like he normally is. But then you kind of, you know, as you read more about it, you're, he's, he's fishing for information, almost like, you know, you know that, that, that he really, you know, and based on, on Sally's comment earlier about, you know, what does that say about somebody that, you know, that is that hard and, and that, you know, uncaring to, you know, to, to, that you could share that kind of, a, you know, the moment that they, sh- you know, that, you know, that they shared with him. And then, you know, here he is kind of opening up to, to Lori a bit and then asking if, you know, her mom talks about her at all. And then up comes Sally. She's a little peeved. And this is a really, you know, her reaction is very, is, it's very interesting, you know, because on the one hand, you know, he brutally and violently attacked and, and either raped or attempted to rape her early on. Then they had, a, you know, what seemed like a, or definitely was a consensual relationship or, um, you know, a, a chance encounter, whatever you want to call it, and and had feelings. And then she comes across him again and just goes ballistic on him. So it's, it's kind of this whole, it's very neurotic, you know, how she's, you know, she, she, she acts one way and then another and then another. It's almost like in public she wants to make sure she carries on the persona of he's a piece of garbage and she's going to, you know, just gripe him out and yell at him and scream at him, you know. But, you know, inside herself she's very conflicted because on the one hand he did something horrible to her. On the other hand, she feels some sort of connection or, you know, almost love for him. Yeah, the comedian says, I thought we'd settled all of that a long time ago. And she replies, no, things like that don't ever get settled, not completely. And they're not going to happen to my daughter. So, you know, she goes from stage mother to mother hen here, you know, shoveling Lori away. And this time, Lori has no idea what uh, the comedian had done to her mom back in the day. Yeah. 
And what, you know, what do you guys get of, you know, where she said, Sally, listen, I thought we settled all that a long time ago. I, and then she said, no, things like that don't ever get settled. Are they talking about the assault and the rape or are they talking about their, you know, their affair that they carried on, you know, 16 years ago? It, it, it's all, it's, it's, it's a little ambiguous as to what they're really talking about and what they really settled. Um, you know, did, did, did he tell, did she tell him that, you know, that, that, you know, that that was his daughter and, you know, that, that he, she was, he was going to have no, you know, no contact and, and nothing to do with her. And that's what was settled. Or, you know, again, is it was the, you know, are they talking about these songs? Well, then at the, at the top of 16, that whole, um, you know, we're just talking, can a guy talk to his, you know, his old friend's daughter? I mean, who do you think, or what do you think I am? You know, when we get to the end of the issue, that, that, that phrase, that, that, conversation that that they have is going to get repeated over and over and over again and ultimately that's the way he says that because you know who talks like that who would say you know a guy can't talk to his you know his old friend's daughter who would who would say you know it just seems like a weird way of saying of saying that so you know when we get to the end of the I mean, he probably you know he probably doesn't know how to refer to her i mean you know is yeah. uh, you know yeah, his I, rape his rape victim's daughter. Yeah. Or, <laughs> it was uh, it was awkward for me to even to read that. I'm like, I, I wasn't sure how to read that, how to you know put the inflection. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting. You know, like I said, that'll that'll have repercussions. You know, and lead to her. You know, lead to her revelation later. And then we get at the bottom of, of 16, where um, you know Sally relates to Lori. You know what happened, what the comedian did to her, and she you know starts starts crying and then it says and it all came pouring out as we see the nostalgia bottle um, upside down and the, the contents pouring out of it yeah that's a great uh, little symmetrical three panels there with uh, Lori and her mom then the nostalgia bottle then Dr. Manhattan and Lori you know with their faces in the same place again yeah, I mean yeah. Gibbons is like the master of transition through this whole book it's just so cinematic and again I, I just want to see how much of it makes it to the screen yeah no no doubt then we get you know on on Moving on to 17, again, another a great, you get a real sense of motion with these three panels where you see the mountain off in the distance, then it gets a little closer, then it's even closer still. Um, and yet the, the, the focus on the characters and, and the, and the, the, basically the foreground stays the same and the background's moving forward. So you get a real sense that they're, they're, they're moving along in this, in this thing. Um, and, and, and again, they're, they're kind of on a journey themselves as well. You know, they're on a, on a, on a mental um, voyage and a, and a physical voyage journey as well. Then John kind of, this is where you know, he kind of points to um, the future, and, and there's a lot of foreshadowing where, you know, again, he says, it ends with you in tears. Look, there, Olympus Mon approaches. And then, and then Lori misinterprets, you know, at her, you know, why she would be crying. Um, and then, and then John, John's response is, I return to Earth at some point in my future. There are streets full of corpses. The details are vague. And then she, you know, she questions him. What do you mean vague? You know, how could, how could you not know, you know, what's going on? And then he, you know, his response is, I'm not sure. There's some sort of static obscuring the future, preventing any clear impression. The electromagnetic pulse of a mass warhead detonation might conceivably cause it. And this is so where I'm we, quest- this is where I questioned, I mentioned earlier, you know, what can Dr. Manhattan see? Can he, if he can only see within his own lifetime, maybe, this is suggesting to me, again, as a first-time reader, is this foreshadowing his his death, his demise? I don't know yet. I mean, please don't tell me, but I'm just wondering, 
he can't see beyond that point or becomes hate that point because he doesn't exist beyond that point. Clouds yeah, no, the future. The dark side does. That's a great observation. I mean, to me, first time reading it, I was, you know, again, I just thought, okay, they're just foreshadowing Armageddon. You know, that, that, that you know, there's going to be some, you know, warhead detonation. And again, like, um, like you said, that electromagnetic pulse because, and as, as we'll see later on, we'll, you know, we'll find out what that really is. And again, we won't, we won't spoil it. There's not, you know, at this point, there's not anything material, um, to this issues discussion that would, that would necessitate us. We will move on. So again, he's, you know, eight, 18, they're continuing on. Um, and then he, you know, again, he's, he's, he's relating some of the events that are going on and, and, and still, um, he says that, you know, beyond that events get sketchier. So, you know, past what he see, you know, what he thinks is going on, things he says get even more vague. Mo- moving on to 19, we get a flashback to coming up to 1973, where we get Lori's uh, a little older. Now this is a new. This get... is a new scene. Well, I don't think we've we've been to this dinner before, have we? So, I don't think we have. There's been know, so many events we've revisited now in this timeline. This is the first time we've seen this particular event. I think. Yes. Before we get to the flashback, I wanted to mention about how we're really seeing the, that the way Dr. Manhattan is almost using the landscape as a metaphor for the human condition, you know, especially with that giant panel on, on the top of 19. Does the human heart know chasm so abysmal? He takes her to the highest point of Mars and then this, uh, the lowest valley of Mars you know, to show her the, the breadth and the depth of his red planet and when she's trying to show like the highs and lows of her life. He's trying to. He's almost using the landscape as a metaphor for her. That's a very good point. It's a very good point. Yeah, and then and then the example that comes to mind is this flashback to '73, where you know she basically says, "Yes, you know, yes, my, you know, my heart knows this chasm. You know, especially, you know, when he's had too much to drink, and immediately he brings up the banquet in '73. So again, we see where, you know, John's making the argument that that humans can't know. You know the the ups and downs and the depths and breadths of, um, you know what compares to in this case the surface of Mars, where all it's been through and and all its 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 vastness and its beauty. And she's making the argument that she does. He makes the argument against, but he gives her more and more examples and forces her to focus on examples where she proves that she's right and he's wrong. So you know again, it's this whole, it's a strange you know um, you know dichotomy where he. He's arguing against something that he helps her prove is true. And I love that, that last panel at the bottom of, of page 19 where um, she says, hopelessly lost in the fog. And then at the bottom of the panel, we get you know, the comedian cigar, you know, throwing out smoke at the bottom of the, of the panel, symbolizing the fog. Moving on to, to page 20, it starts out as the fog I was lost in that night was scotch, was scotch mist. And it's funny how they start you know, where she says that, and it shows her looking through the glass, um, you know, where, where the, the image is, is skewed. And so she talks about a, a fog, and, and, you know, the image we see in that panel as she talks about that is this, is this distorted, you know, gray, black and white image um, through, the, through the bottom of the glass. And then we start to get more holes filled in as to, as to the divergent timeline between the world of the Watchmen and the world as we know it, where... Um, it's 73, and, and Vice President Ford is giving Edward Blake uh, kudos, giving him uh, some sort of some sort of 
metal or you know pat on the back and then and and then as we move on they you know they we find out the the conversation where they talk about um you know they they found um two dead reporters in in the garage um woodward and who you know woodward and Bernstein. so again in in the real world woodward and Bernstein were the ones that pretty much broke open the whole watergate conspiracy and then in this world, we find out that they pretty much were murdered, yeah. or were led to believe they were murdered before that ever happened. There was no story uh, until they until they made it a story. And interesting, I'm just you really can't tell on this panel, and maybe you can see clearer in the absolute. But is that supposed to be? I'm wondering if that's supposed to be uh, Ford get, telling them about talking about about Woodward and Bernstein there. Yeah, I would guess it is because you know again it, it you know balding guy wearing a suit. It sounds it, it, yeah. I would I would make that assumption based on on that panel. And be, being that, you know, it says Woodward and what's his name? Jewish name. So they, you know, again, Ford had been kind of caricatured, caricatured as kind of like a, kind of a goof. So for, to not be able to, to remember a name and then, you know, kind of say Jewish name, you know, kind of almost derogatory that, that would fit. Then we get in the next panel that, you know, he, you know, what's the comedian's response? You know, that, that piece in the Berkeley barb. Well, I guess you smoke enough weed. You can imagine almost anything. So again, he's making fun of. You know, then he says, no, I'm clean, guys. Just don't ask me where I was when I heard about JFK. You know, yeah. so he kind of, you know, he almost kind of laughs it off. And then they make a comment about how Nixon would you know, love that. That's just so a great, again, that's, just, that's just a great way to describe it. Don't ask where I was because, you know, those kind of events, JFK, Challenger, 9-11, everybody knows where they were when it happened. And so he's like, where were you when JFK got shot? He's like, don't ask me. Yeah. Yeah. I was an undergrad student. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, again, it's, it's ambiguous. It's like, okay, well, is he, you know, is he serious and he really had nothing to do with Woodward and Bernstein? Probably not. Um, you know, and he, he, he deflects it with the whole JFK comment. Everybody so, in that room knows exactly what he, where he was, so that's, that's what makes it even funnier. Everybody's like, yeah, we know. Yeah. And then they, they refer to, uh, he, he refers to, uh, one of the guys. I'm, I can't tell if that's, if that's Ford. I guess it's Ford based on where he's standing. He says, you know, he, he, he says, Something about relaxing. Um, yeah, it is. It is for said. You know, he refers to Doctor Manhattan as Mister Spock over there. So it's just kind of funny how they, you know, they, you know, what, what they really think of, of Doctor Manhattan. Again, you know, somebody alien, somebody not human. You know, just like Mister Spock. Would be. Now this is after Vietnam, I'm guessing, because I'm thinking the scar on his face, on the comedian's face, is what the uh, the Vietnamese girl gave him, right? Yeah, I mean, this is '73, and I think. You know, in this world, I think the Vietnam War ended in 68, 69. Yeah, it was something like that. So, no, it was it 71? I think this is a couple years. Yeah, I think it was earlier, 71 maybe. Because it was after Nixon was in office and he was there. But yeah, this is definitely afterwards. And then we get, you know, at the bottom of 20, we almost get the same exchange as we got, you know, a few pages back. You know, almost very similar to the, to the exchange on page 15. We you know where he says, oh, let me, you know, let me look at you. Let me, you know, let me... You know, and he comments about how attractive she is and, you know, holds her face the same way. And he's, again, he's, you know, he's got a cigar. And then, of course, Lori's a little drunk and then pretty much just goes all, just goes completely off on, on Edward Blake. Moving on to, to 21, you know, his response, you know, she, she basically calls him out on it. Everybody's trying to calm him down. And then, you know, his response about, you know, you know, forcing her against her will, he says only once. You know, again, he's still, it's like he's still in denial about, you know, about what he did in that whole, 
you know, that whole thing that happened. You know, to him, it's, you know, again, he has a very negative opinion of women and, you know, a very, you know, the way he degrades women. The other thing that's interesting on, on 21, you know, when the comedian actually says only once, you almost see a little bit of, it's like he's almost like he's, I wouldn't say remorseful, but it's almost like he's, he's taking this personally and taking it, you know, bad that his relationship with his own daughter has come down to this, that she's, you know, showing him up and that he hasn't been able to have a good, you know, relationship with her. And, or, you know, just, he has almost like a stunned look on his face. You know, on that on that third panel at the top there, it's kind of a double meaning too, because only once it was against her will, and all the rest of the times it wasn't. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, making it seem like you know, yeah, it was against her will, but you know, yeah, like like you said, there were other times where it wasn't. Yeah, I mean, then, and she even comments like the, the scar; it almost makes him look like he's smirking. But when you look at his eyes, the way he's so well drawn, he 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 almost sees see the regret in his eyes about that one time. He's like. Like he's saying with regret and sorrow only once. Yeah. And then, you know, almost like to me, it almost says too, it's like he's wondering, you know, what, what would life have been like if, if that, you know, if, if, you know, they could have been a normal family, you know, or a regular family or, you know, been, you know, if he'd have been around Lori her, her whole life instead of now where she basically hates him and doesn't want anything to do with him and doesn't even know the truth. Again, the, the caption in the middle of 21 where it says, I let him have it. And you, again, you see the bottle, you know, draining out. Then Lori gets a little bent out of shape and, you know, she starts emptying out the contents of her, of her purse and then opens up her scrapbook and starts throwing the pages into the chasm. So, you know, again, she's, you know, it's like she's casting off her life, you know, the, the, basically the, the low point of her life, which is, you know, her mother forcing her into being this costume adventurer, which she never wanted to be, be in the first place. And all of the, the things that happen, she's, she's throwing into the chasm on Mars. The, the, the low point of the, of the planet, or, you know, the magical low point of her life. And then we get John, you know, focusing back on the, the scientific, you know, you know, she says, Oh, well, you know, you don't see anything ter- terribly miraculous in life. Maybe quantum physics doesn't allow miracles. And his response is, you know, no, thermodynamic miracles are, and then, you know, she's like, oh, for God's sake, John, just, you know, just land this thing. You know, it's just like, you know, he's always relating everything back to some sort of scientific explanation or scientific, um, you know, meaning, you know, when she's trying to, you know, have a heart-to-heart type conversation with him. So then we move on to 22, where we get this awesome top panel of the, again, the Martian sunset, and we get the, the very, the reds and the, and the oranges, um, off the, the structure floating, floating through the planet. It's interesting too to see that I take it as he's propelling this device forward and it's creating dust. You know, that he's basically kicking up dust from the planet and it's causing, but it almost looks like clouds. And obviously, there's no clouds on Mars, but it, 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 it's interesting how they keep it up. No, that's that's no referred to as fog earlier. I think. I think there is some is there type of atmosphere. There's, there's an atmosphere, but they're talking that that's fog. How we darn? Yeah, he says earlier there's a dust storm uh, kicking up, and then uh, Laurie refers to it later, you know, living your life in a fog. But I think this panel really uh, shows the fog starting to clear away, and I think we see that coming up in the next page when Laurie starts to put two and two together. Yeah, right. No, that's great. Right. Then, and at the bottom of 23, where he kind of teleports ahead, or what I assume is he's teleporting ahead, where in one panel he's direct, you know, he's, he's standing on the ledge, and she's at the stairway, and she's 
maybe halfway down the stairs and he's at the at the at the doorway and then before she gets a chance to to get down the stairs he's already down there and you know in front of you know and she's thinking he's he's totally ignoring her and uh he says he hears her yeah, start, and he startles her yeah yeah he's scared you know scares her because she's which is kind of funny because you think by now she'd be used to that it's weird it's like john's trying to impart his perspective of being able to see time all at once as a pattern to her and she's slowly piecing her memories together as a pattern as opposed to I mean in the middle of uh, 23 you know it's been a dumb life if there's any design it's a dumb design but slowly but surely she's kind of getting a little bit of John's perspective and seeing things all together as you know her life as a whole rather than these right. just assorted memories right but on, yeah. the, on the page previous when he talks about you know he's starting to get why he needs the help you know the uh and as she starts putting the pieces together, and then the next page, she'll go into his uh, his reasoning to help of how about the there are miracles in the human spirit, and they are worth saving. Yeah, and it's interesting how you know, like Jim was saying that you know, in the middle of twenty three, where he says, where Laurie says, I'm through looking about my through thinking about my life, looking back on all my stupid memories. But you know, once she kind of hits that re- revelation of I'm not going to look back anymore, she has the you know you know, what's probably the biggest revelation of her entire life. Um, and she came to that by looking back, um, you know, because of course the, the first thing in the next panel is she's thinking back to when, after the first crime busters meeting, when she looked back out of that rear, um, the rear view, the rear window and sees um, him staring at her, you know, the comedian staring, and you know, just he, he didn't, you know, they took off. He didn't just, just turn around and walk away. He, he, he sat there and stared. And then again, they cut to the image of, of, uh, you know, that we talked about earlier where, um, where he said only once, but it's, it's that same, that same panel image where he kind of has that look on his face like, you know, what, what could have been. She seems like she's totally in denial. It's dumb life, dumb design. Uh, there's nothing to avoid. And then finally in the last pattern, there's nothing here worth avoiding. And, and then that final word balloon where that has a really tiny no in the big white space. I think that's where it really just, snaps for her you know it comes together and it's like oh my god and then you see yeah. it you know play out in the next page yeah and it's just the constant repeating only once what do you think i am old friend's daughter what do you think his you know his what do you think you know just again they keep repeating that you know and, and and you can tell that that's what's going through her mind are those you know those conversations over and over and over and over again and then until the you know the final time you know we're just talking. Can a guy talk to his, you know, his, and then she finally puts it together as daughter. And then she just kind of realizes it, freaks out. And then we see the moment happen. That's really, you know, what's been leading up to the whole issue is this, this nostalgia bottle that's been thrown in the air and is sailing through the air. And then finally crashes into the structure that John has built. It's amazing to me that either she just finds that one right spot or this, this tower of castle of glass, it's just that fragile that one direct hit, one right hit can bring the whole thing crashing down. Yeah. Yeah, I wasn't sure what quite to make of that. I, I thought it was interesting how they chose to use her throwing that bottle as a you know, as a way to, to bring to bring it down. You know, and it's interesting to me, the other thing I got is, you know, as we see this nostalgia bottle, it's a good representation of how time is viewed. You know, basically it's almost like this whole issue um, took place between a moment in time of a bottle being thrown at, at, a, at a structure. You know, it, it was just kind of strange. Plus, she's throwing away her nostalgia, 
literally. I mean, you know, the yeah. rose-colored glasses are off. She knows that the comedian is her father. And, you know, even though it's hard for her to accept, she knows the truth. And what did you guys take? Do you guys take anything more out of the, the structure collapsing? You know, it, it, anything else about its, its fragility? Well, I think as Doc, as John's going to go through and discussing this, uh, this miracle of humanity, the, uh, you know, basically of conception and birth that's going to bring him back to Earth. It's kind of representing, at least to him, this, as attached as he was to Mars and detached from Earth, this is the reversal point. This is where he's going to break away from Mars. His structure, his his house, his castle is gone now, and it's time for him to go back to Earth and do what he needs to do. So in many ways, this is Laurie um, uh, breaking that link, re- re- reaffirming his link to her and therefore to Earth, and breaking the link that has him at Mars. Literally yeah, bringing yeah. him down to ground, back down to ground level. Right. Yeah. The, yeah, uh, the other thing that I take away from this page is that now, I mean, before the, the crash or whatever, before the revelation, Lori thought all life was meaningful. She was trying to, to um, you know, persuade Dr. Manhattan to save Earth. And now Dr. Manhattan thinks that life, uh, you know, life has meaning, but Lori doesn't. You know, my life's a big joke, one stupid, meaningless. Yeah, it's almost like they both kind of hit the revelation at the same time. You know, Lori had her revelation of who she really is and where she really comes from. And John, you know, kind of finally had the revelation. Okay, it's, you know, you, you've convinced me. I've changed my mind. It's time, it's time to go back. And then he, he releases back the thermodynamic miracle. Then they just kind of have this, this interesting conversation about the, the strangeness of how, you know, a person comes into being through, through a, a mixture of interactions of, uh, you know, improbabilities that, that certain people would get together and certain biological events would, you know, happen the way they, they did to make a person. And that's, and that's the miracle I referred to. That's, that's, you know, where the beginning of this journey, Dr. Manhattan couldn't see that miracle in humanity, couldn't see that value. And, and now he clearly does. And probably just one of the things that brought a smile on my face we're going to see on this one of the last pages here is um, the feature of the smiley face on planet Mars is a, is a real feature on there. And just using that to be where she brought down the castle and, and kind of mimicking the uh, the blood stain on the smiley face at the very beginning of the whole book is just a, a great nod. Yeah, the biggest, biggest smiley face in the whole book right here. Yep. Which, you know, kind of parallels to the whole, you know, faces of Mars thing. You know, like the, I don't know if you guys have seen those NASA, the NASA yep. footage from the, the bike, you know, back in the 70s, how they, you know, built their faces on Mars. And so it's kind of interesting how they, they were able to kind of work that into this as well. Well, like I said, there is like the, the smiley face is there. I think we posted it in our, on our, on our thread, our Watchmen resource thread. There's a picture of it. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, there's a link to it. I remember. Then we get into page 28. And of course, it ends just as John said it was. It was. We never see it, but it does end how he said. You know, he said this will end with you know with you in tears. And you know what are his his last comments are: dry your eyes and let's go home. So obviously she's crying, even though we never see it, and the issue is over. So then we get the uh, the quote from Carl Jung: "As far as we can discern, the sole purpose of human existence is to kindle a light of meaning in the darkness of mere being." Yeah, that really speaks to the whole theme of uh, her trying to justify mankind's existence to John. For the prose piece this time, we get the uh, the clippings that Sally had on Mars, I would imagine. 
the 1939's uh, Daily World uh, during the height of the superhero craze. Uh, 1945, when she's trying to make a uh, film career of her own, and then other you know things from her files, a, a letter from Captain Metropolis. That's my favorite one, especially her note in the bottom. Your 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 yeah. costume comrade in the campaign against crime. Are you kidding? I love the really crappy brighter face uh, typeface too. That's great. Yep. Yeah. Well, then we get you know the the first one is it's funny how they. Is Hallie Jupiter, alias Silk Spectre. It seemed that she and veteran vigilante hooded justice are something of an item and seldom out of each other's company. Can wedding balls be too far away? So, again, they, you know, they publicly they're linked to each other. Um, and then we get, you know, of course, we get the letter from Nelson Gardner, who is Captain Metropolis, um, wanting to form, you know, basically what comes, what, what becomes the Minutemen. And then we get a letter. Few years later, from you know Larry Shaxon or Shaxonider, however you say, it. never figured this out. And and where he he comments on, it says it says I know that you've provided a pretty steady alibi for HJ up to now. So you know, he's commenting on the fact that you know they're, they're you know it, it's been it, it, it's been hinted and intimated earlier that Hooded Justice was was gay, and. You know, obviously back then, you know, that would, from a publicity standpoint in 19, in the 30s and 40s, that would have a negative impact. So again, they relate, you know, Larry's relating the fact that, you know, yes, he's been basically giving her an alibi so that, you know, that, that image doesn't come out in the public. And then it says, Nellie says he's always out when Nellie calls. And it's almost like a typo. It says out with boys, and apparently there's a lot of rough stuff going on, you know, and then they go on and on. Um, and what I got out of this is Nellie is they're meaning Nelson Gardner, right. meaning Captain Metropolis. So it's it's highly, you know, basically this letter is, you know, something's got to be done about this because you know the two of them are, you know, obviously together they're 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 getting a little out of out of hand, and if somebody ends up going to the cops with this, it's all going to come down, you know, in, in a bad way. Well, you got to look at it from a publicity point of view. First, they had the silhouette. Right. Then they had right. Dollar Bill who died because of his cape, pretty much. And right. uh, now now this, which is like a scandal just waiting to happen. I mean, 1948, you know, that kind of thing, not really, uh, you know, looked upon the way it is now. So, I mean, he, he's basically, you know, saying, hey, why don't we just cut our losses and get out of here? And the funniest thing I hear is her writing, nearest thing I ever got to a proposal, the bottom, you know, for yeah. a viable partnership proposition. It's hilarious. It really talks to like what their real relationship was. And then you know we get the you know back on on twenty nine the little part that's taped to it from King Taylor Productions talks about you know to Sal and you know Sally and Larry talking about the movie and how he's got the perfect um, you know person that can you know fill you know fill in for Sally. Then we we move ahead to nineteen forty eight and we see that you know it's basically a review of the movie and it and it they, you know they they call it a a cheaply made B, you know, by even by B movie standards, and they pretty much rib, you know, rip the movie up one side and down the other. And they even call it too awful, even to be dignified with the term pornography. The only act, of, real act of statum in this film lies in releasing it. So that's hilarious. And they spelled her name wrong. It's Sally Juniper. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love 
you know, those little details like that. You know, it's like they purposely, you know, there's there's purposely typos and purposely, you know, things. It just makes it more real, you know, that, you know, people people make mistakes and, you know, you know, people don't talk, you know, without any kind of, uh, you know, hiccup in their in their step. So that, that was that was interesting. And the last piece is a is an article from I, I'm assuming this is Probe Magazine from September of '76. And it, it's interesting because she, you know, one of the last questions she's asked is about her daughter, and uh, you know, she she basically, uh, you know, says she pushed her, she probably pushed her too hard, um, you know, that that she's responsible for kind of pushing her into it, and that you know. She knows her daughter blames her into, you know, or blames her for, you know, kind of, kind of pushing that career on her. Well, here I go proving that I actually do read the articles in Playboy because <laughs> this is obviously, you know, patterned after the Playboy interview and in, in each art interview. Uh, yeah. Each uh, yeah. Just Playboy. I, I've I've heard. Yeah, and it, it's interesting too because they even ask her, you know, you know about who, you know, who who might have been gay. And then, you know, they, they, you know, they talk about, you know, Silhouette. And then she says, you know, well, there was a couple of the guys and they're both dead now. One died recently, which, which I'm, I'm assuming that the one that died recently, she'd be referring to Captain Metropolis who died in the car, he was decapitated in the car accident. Um, because he was one that died, um, you know, definitely after they had the Minutemen meeting, but, um, not real clear as to when. Very interesting. Yep. So that is issue nine. Next issue, issue ten, will be at DefCon two. Uh-oh. It will be at yep. two minutes to midnight as well. We've got three issues left. Still chugging along. Awesome. It's been a great ride. I'm enjoying it. Has. So, as as always, please keep the comments coming. Again, visit the comic forums at thecomicforums.com. All our episode uh, threads are under the half hour wasted forum. Um, send us Emails at comments at legionofdudes.com. Um, send us, you know, like we said earlier, send us send us some MP3 voicemail messages to that email address. We'd be happy to play them, happy to mention any comments. And we'll be back next week with, I think next week is, is will be just a, a random dudes episode, if I'm not mistaken. It's uh, what the dudes want for Christmas, I believe. Oh, that's right, what yeah. the dudes want for Christmas. Yes, yes, yes. Get to whip out our Christmas list and we right. get to find out whether we've been naughty or nice. Or both. Thank you. Hey, folks, I just wanted to jump in here real quick and uh, make sure we got this word out. Uh, for the What the Do's Want for Christmas show, we're going to ask our fantastic listeners to call in at the half hour wasted voicemail number, which is 972 798 3830. If you want to give that number a call and tell us what you want for Christmas, in the areas of comics, toys, movies, video games, you know, all the good geek stuff. And once again, that number is 972-798-3830. Please do so, and uh, we're going to get a bunch of them on the air, and it should be a lot of fun. So I guess that's it for this this episode, this issue. We'll uh, we'll see everybody back here for Watchmen 10 in two weeks, and we'll look at dudes once for Christmas in one. Thanks for listening, and we'll, see you, uh, and we'll see you next week. Thanks a lot. Good night. Good night.